This is what happened. The exile happened where Babylon came and destroyed, um, destroyed uh, the Assyrians uh, initially came and destroyed North Israel. And we know that south, the south part of Israel is called Judah. And so finally in 586, we know that the temple was destroyed fully and they took all of the um, Israelites to what is present-day Iraq. Now, within just about 50 years the Persians came and destroyed the Babylon uh, the, the Babylonians and so unbelievably King Cyrus and then ultimately King Darius in the Persian Empire said you know what here let's go to the next one you know what you can go back now now look at all of that colored green area the Medes and the Persians right the, the Medes and the Persian Empire was all of that so, I mean, we're talking about a massive empire here. And they told little Israel, you know what you're allowed to do? You can go from present-day Iraq, where the Tigris and the Euphrates River are, you can move back to Jerusalem. We know what the Babylonians did to you. They destroyed your temple in 586, but it's 539 now, and you're allowed to go back. And so God had it all planned out that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi the three minor prophets. And when you think about minor prophets, why do they call them minor prophets? It's because they're shorter. That's not very <laughs> technical, right? The major prophets are the long prophetic books, and the, and the minor prophets are the short ones. So you, you move back. Why? Let's, let's go to the next slide. Because, look at the Temple Mount. What matters is this, and what matters to your life right now is this. Is God with you? I mean, would you... Would you say right now, God is with you? I mean, if you were having coffee at Starbucks, would you tell your closest friend, you know what, here's what I believe fundamentally. God is with me, and it's changed my life. Because ultimately, that's all the Old Testament's about. It's about the presence of God. And I know every person in this room right now, all you care about is this. Is God here? And if God is here in this room right now, is God with me? Because I don't want to do religion. So many of you have told me that. You've been a part of religion for a very long time and you're sick of it. I want to know that God is personal. That he's with me. And so here we are in the Old Testament, which actually many churches would think would be utterly irrelevant. And here's what we've realized, is that Haggai... In this last little four, I mean, all we're going to look at this morning is four verses. They would read these verses and think, why would you do that? Why would a church spend 30 minutes on four verses in the Old Testament, the short little tiny, tiny minor prophet? It's, it just it doesn't even make sense. But here's what we believe, is that the story of Scripture, all of it, catapults us, it moves us to Christmas morning. Because here's what we fundamentally believe in John 1. 
the Word became flesh, the Logos, the presence of God became flesh, and He's no longer in a temple, and He resides with us. If you believe that, I think your life is going to change. If you don't, and you're here for religious reasons or for moral reasons, you're going to be thoroughly, utterly disappointed with this Sunday. Because all of this points to um, Haggai describing what the Lord will do. Because the language that he uses is the language of God's historical acts. These massive acts of God that judge the wicked and ultimately what? Deliver his people. And in the Old Testament, that was Israel. But in the New Testament, and we're in New Testament times, that's the church and that's me and you. And so here's what we believe, that the God, the God of the universe judges us but transforms us through the church and the work of Christ. And so this is it. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. And so finally, if you see that map, the whole idea was Haggai was like, please build my house the temple mount you see that in the upper right hand area do not build your church your, your houses and that's what was happening and we remember it was started and then for 20 years no bulldozer or any you know construction equipment was used to build the temple and Haggai came and said hey what are you doing because I'm going through your subdivisions and here's what I realized I'm looking at your um Wells Fargo uh, line item list of what you're spending your money on and it's all about you and when I build my temple which is built on the mound of Zion I need to make sure that if I looked at your outlook right your Microsoft outlook your calendar that your time and your treasures and your talent is centered on me. That's what Zion, that's why we, we, we th when we think of the word Zion, that's why it's the mound of God. That literally in the holy city, it is the central place in the holy city. So why in the world would you, if you're rebuilding your life this morning, if you're here because you're, you feel like you're in a rebuild, if you will, and maybe it's not a full rebuild, but maybe a certain area of your life, you know you need to rebuild it. Here's what the Lord says. You start with me. you got to start with my house. And so that's what we see. And that's what Haggai was saying. Please start with the Temple Mount. Please. It will be all off if you just start with your own house. And so remember, last week we, we left off. It was December the 18th, 520 B.C. And that same day, on the, literally that same day, Haggai got another um, oracle, if you will, a, a word of, a prophetic word from God. And here, here it is. This is uh, Haggai 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of, of the month. So that's December the 18th, 520 B.C. We talked about this last week. Here's what it says. Tell Zerubbabel, say that five times fast, governor of Judah, this is the Lord speaking through, through Haggai to West Town Church. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers horses 
and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. Now, if you would have been a Jewish boy reading this in Hebrew, you know what would have happened? This would have reverberated in your mind. Because if you were 12 and you were really good and you made the headmaster's list, you know what you got in line for? To be a young Talmudim, which is the disciple of the rabbi. And if you were good enough, you became a rabbi. And you only could become a rabbi when you're 30 years old. And so here he is saying, you know, kind of making allusions to all these things. And what do we hear in verse 22? We hear the allusions to what Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. We hear the allusions to Exodus 15, where Moses, Moses is a songwriter. He's a singer-songwriter. And he says, the horse and the rider, they're thrown into the sea. The Lord my God, my strength, my song, has now become my victory. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. Pharaoh and all his chariots have been thrown into the sea. That's what this language would bring up in a young Jewish boy. It would also bring up the plight of the armies against Midian. And if you know anything about the judges, Gideon and his 300 men, and you know what happened. He, they went against the Midianites, and at night they took their jars and they shattered them, and the Midianites were so scared, they didn't even know what was going on. You know what they started doing? They started doing the end of verse 22 each by the sword of his brother. They started killing their own brothers and teammates. Fellow Midianites killed one another, and that was all in God's plan. And so you hear this language, and you realize, oh man, that, that's judges' language. That's, that's Gideon and the judges. And it's not just Gideon. You know who this is? This is Ezekiel language. Because when, when you start talking about uh, swords against their brothers that's what happened in ezekiel 38 and you know what happens to those that hate god the it rains sulfur against them i mean that, that's the language of ezekiel the major problem of ezekiel during the exile and then if you really look at it even more the contemporary to haggai so there was two prophets right or really three haggai zechariah the other prophet that Haggai would have known, they maybe lived near each other, they, this language would have, would have echoed in there because here's what Zechariah says. You know what? When you're on a horse, your horse will get um, anxiety disorder, like a general anxiety disorder. DSM-4, right? General anxiety disorder. That's what it says in Zechariah 14, 13. Every horse will panic and get anxiety. And you know what's going to happen to the rider on top of the horse when the Lord comes to bring about his kingdom and his wrath and his justice and his light? Every rider will go mad. That's what it's going to be like. And you need to be a little scared. And so Haggai is saying, here is the prophecy. Here is the way in which the, the word of the Lord will come. And it's going to be strong. And so you and I need to hear that. When you think about the powers today, the powers of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, the Lord laughs at that stuff. When the Lord looks at Congress, when he looks at the Supreme Court, when he looks at the president, he thinks, really, you think you have power? I mean, maybe we will or maybe we won't impeach a president here over the next few months or weeks or whatever. 
But he says, do you not understand? I've controlled history from the very beginning. Don't get lost in this story of CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. Don't, because you can easily get lost into that. The Haggai is trying to say, this is God of the universe, of the world, who spoke you into existence in the womb of your mother. And some of you are here and you're 20, or maybe you're 40, or maybe you're 60 or 80, and you think, you know, God doesn't have your life in his hand, and he does. And Haggai is trying to tell us that. And beautifully, he says, look, I'm going to connect this thing. And here's what I'm going to do in this prophecy in these last four verses. I'm going to connect this to what? All of the Old Testament and how all of it points to Christmas morning. All of it points to December 25th when we celebrate the birth of our Lord. I promise you, all of this connects. And so some of us throw out the first 39 books of the Bible and we think, oh, what does it matter really? It really, what matters is Jesus in the New Testament. No, it doesn't. You have to see the full story of Scripture. And so here's what we know. That was um, 20 through 22. And he gets even more personal with my favorite name and yours, Zerubbabel. On that day, declares the Lord, Almighty, verse 23. On that day, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, declares the Lord. And I, now listen to this, I will take you and then I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you. Think about those, just those the little verbal phrases there. I will take you I will what? I will make you and what? Ultimately, here's the context. I chose you. <laughs> you think your life is your own. It's never been your own. Because here's what we know in Ephesians 1. Before the foundations of the world, I chose you. You're not here by your own, ultimately your own volition. Do you not understand that every single second, every single hour, every single day, I'm in control of the whole thing. You think you're doing things based upon your plan. And no, no, you can't believe that. Because you know what? It, it, the truth is, is I will take you. Listen to this in Acts 9. This is a dude named Saul. And says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul murderous threats. He was saying, I will kill you. Now imagine a dude named Saul doing that in the New Testament. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So I may kill you or I may make you my prisoner if you believe in Jesus. That's what it says in the book of Acts. As he neared Damascus, on his journey, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. 
They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, went, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I will take you, Haggai says. This is the oracle of the Lord. For some of you in this room right now, here's what God is trying to tell you. I am taking you. You may be like Saul, thinking your life is fine. I've got a job that pays me 40 or 80 or 120 or 150 thousand dollars a year and my life is my own and Saul thought that very same thing and God said you know what I will do to you here's how in control I am I will take you now you may see that as oppressive you may see that as you know a God who dominates and is the you know his thumb on this little ant that you are no this is unbelievable love this is God who intervenes in your life and in my life. And he says, Frank, you know, you had decisions to make when you were a sophomore at Florida State. You know what I'm going to do? I will take you right now. I'm going to take you. And you may not see it, but maybe he puts you in Campus Crusade for Christ. And he says, I'm going to take you in this way. And you know what? I'm going to change your life. And for some of you right now, here's what you need to understand. Is he is coming in your life right now and he is taking you. And nothing tastes the same, nothing looks the same, nothing sounds the same. And the reason why is because he is coming to take you. And where this may sound heavy-handed or oppressive, but it's what we know is it's beautiful. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel. I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you from that addiction that you have or from that horrible relationship or from that, you know, the, the, the boredom that you live with, that you thought, man, I, I got everything and I'm bored. We talked about it a few weeks ago. And here, here's what he's saying to you. I am taking you. Because here's what I want to do to you, Zerubbabel. My servant, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like what? Like my signet ring. Think about that. In the ancient Near East, the signet ring was what? Let's go to the next slide. Do we have a picture? I thought I had a picture here. Maybe we don't. There it is. Hey, signet ring. Right? It's an emblem. It's, it's a crest, if you will. What does that mean? It's your signature. That's all it is. In the ancient Near East, this was your signature if you were a king or if you were a governor. And he says, you know what, as long as it has that crest, as long as it has that signature, what does it mean? It means it's authentic. How would you know if something's authentic or fake? Well, look for the signet ring. And look for, you know, that being in wax and on a piece of paper. That's how you know it's real. And here's what he says. He says, you know what, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like my signet ring. I'm going to make you what? I'm going to make you like my signature. Now, if you hadn't read the Old Testament, this wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. But here, here's what we know. Back in Jeremiah, during the time before, before Haggai, during the time of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was known as the crying prophet. Literally, tears were coming down his eyes. He was weeping as people were leaving Jerusalem and walking to Iraq, present-day Iraq, Babylon. Here's what it says. 
The king of Judah, who was the southern kingdom, his name was Jehoiakim. And here's what we know in Jeremiah 22, verse 24. Here's what Jeremiah writes. As I live, declares the Lord, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hands of those of whom you are afraid. Even I would give you over to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you um, into a land where you were not born, and there, you know what? You shall die. And here's what we know. This was written in roughly six, like 615 B.C., roughly 100 years before Haggai. That's why this, this verse means a lot. It's because uh, God, through the prophet of Jeremiah, is saying, you know what? Your immediate offspring will not rule in Jerusalem. But, here's what it does say. It promises that there will be a king. And when you think everything's lost, and when you think you're at the worst, you know, you're at the worst spot you've ever been. You're addicted to the opioids, right? You've gotten divorce. You think you're worthless. And many of us in this room right now, you're there. Here's what God says. No, no, no. Here, here's, what, here's, here's what. As much bad and as much sin has been in your life, here's what I promise you. If I have taken you out and I've called you, here's what I, I promise you. That you know what? There will be a king. And in Jeremiah, the very next chapter, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. In other words, he promises us that, you know what? I promise you that there's someone coming. Imagine King David. And this was 1000 BC. And this is what we're talking about is Haggai. And that's 520 BC. So roughly 480 years have passed since King David. Here's what King David knew. He, 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 here's what he knew. God told him this. Um, that you shall build a house for my name. This is when God is telling David, you'll build the initial temple. And when you commit iniquity, David, when you sleep with Bathsheba, when you hear West Towner, when you really mess up, I will discipline you with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But, here's what I know, my steadfast love will not ever depart from you. Though it looks like God has removed his presence from you, he promises that if he has taken you somewhere, he promises he will be there for you. And some of you think this, you can lose your salvation. Some of you in this room think you can out-sin the grace of God. And I know you come here hoping that if you were to die tonight, if you were to hit, get hit by a car on racetrack road, you're just hoping that you would go to heaven. And what... This promise tells you and tells me, no, no. If he's taken you, like David, who he took, and he said, I'm going to put you by a brook, and I'm going to have you pull five smooth stones, because you're going to do an unbelievable miracle. There's going to be a giant named Goliath, and you're going to take a slingshot, and you're going to kill him, and you're going to become the hero. In fact, you're going to become the king. If you will believe that I will use you in 
And though you will see a naked lady on top of a roof and you'll sleep with her and you'll kill that girl's husband. If, if you believe that even in spite of that sin, I will still use you. That all of this points towards what? The perfect king. David, you're not the perfect king. And so here's what we know. In the New Testament, we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now think about this. Here we are, and it's a doctor, and his name's Luke. He's really detailed, and so he wrote a lot of details in his genealogy. Now imagine this. You're reading the Gospel of Luke, and you come to the third chapter of Luke. Look what it says. Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, beginning the son. And you follow that all the way down. You follow that all the way down. I thought I had it highlighted, but I don't. Let's go to the next slide. Oh boy, can't find him in there. Look at the very bottom verse, son of Adam. Or you think of son of Adam. And you go back up, Lamech, Peleg, Nahor, Isaac, and you see Jacob, and you see Judah, and you see Perez, and Abinadab, and you see Jesse, and you see David. Let's go back one more slide. There's David. Go back to verse 27. Who is that? There he is. What? He wasn't a king. Zerubbabel wasn't a king. He was a governor. He was a satrap, right? He was this non... No, no, and here's what God is saying in this. You know what? Here's what I'll use. I'll use some random governor, because here's what I will promise you. I promise you that through the line of David, through the line of Jesse, through the line of Judah, there will come a king and he'll change your life. And this is Luke chapter 3. This is 520 years after Haggai. And he writes Zerubbabel. And what do we know about Zerubbabel? He is in the line of Jesus. Amen? Amen? This is the stuff that validates our faith. This is the stuff when a prophecy comes true, when a prophecy is realized, you know what we get? We get confidence. And a lot of us in this room, you need confidence. Because you're nervous and you're anxiety ridden. And what Haggai is trying to tell you is trust in me. Please. Because when David commits iniquity, I will discipline. But you know what? There's a king that will never commit any iniquity. And his name is Jesus. And if you trust that he is the second Adam because the first Adam could not say no to the apple, but this guy could be with Satan in the desert for 40 days representing the 40 years that Israel was in the desert. And if you trust in his work, you know what? You will have hope. And that's what, that's what Haggai was tapped into. And so when you think about your life, here's what he says to you and to me. I have taken you and here's what I've done. I have given you this signet ring that authenticates what I have done in you. Follow the genealogy. The genealogy. Follow it. Use history. It doesn't work against us. It works for us as a Christian. And, and there's so many of us in this room that you don't feel a lot, but you think God chose Zerubbabel for a significant task. And what was that? Rebuild the temple, man. Get a bunch of Jews that have been removed from uh, Iraq and rebuild the temple. And when Zerubbabel did that, it was a sign of hope. Now, I'll tell you this. If you read the book of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, 
the second building of the temple was a bit depressing. They thought it was going to be a lot better. But they also knew, wait, no, there's something even greater than this. And it's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually a person. It's, 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 there's a man coming. And Jesus is the greater son of Zerubbabel. And you know what he's going to come like? He's going to come in a position that would what? That would grant him no respect in this world. That's, what, that's the way he would come. And we all want and desire deeply respect. And he will be humble. And he will take the form of a servant. And he will be faithful and practice fidelity even unto death. And so you look at the cross. And we, you know, we, look, we look back to the cross and you think, Jesus, you know, looked more like a new Jehoiakim. This, this king who would suffer, cast off by God, then he really did. This is Zerubbabel, God's chosen servant. But here's what we know. Underneath God's temporary rejection, where we know the father turned his face away from the, the son, we know that Jesus received that, the wrath of God, there was an eternal promise that could never, ever be broken. And that's why you're here. That's why you are here this morning. And you need confidence, and this passage is meant to give it to you. Because just as the sins of David and all the kings after him brought exile and destruction, you know what? Now the righteous death of Jesus brings life to those who trust in him. And we'll end with the last phrase. It's this. I will make you like my signet ring. Why? For I have chosen you. Here's the thing we know. You didn't choose God. You think you did. I think I chose God when I was 12 years old at Pistol Pete Maravich basketball camp and became a Christian. No, I didn't. Because my heart was sinful and God chose me. And when I understand that, when I understand that I didn't deserve any of the grace of Jesus, and Haggai points all to that, that he has chosen me, declares the Lord. You know what? I live life differently. I read this one, um, this, this one like, analogy or this one example uh, of John Piper that he gave. And I loved kind of the way he saw his life. It was this. He says this, there's two kinds of mag magnifying. Magnifying and telescope magnifying. Seeing things that look bigger than they really are. That's a microscope. But if you think about a telescope, he says, the other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. And so when David says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, he does not mean, I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means, I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. And that's, that's, that's our marching order. We are not called to be microscopes, as John Piper says. We are called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men, right? Who magnify their product out of all proportion. But there's, and when, we, when we recognize that there is nothing superior to God, we become, and then talk about, uh, we become telescopes. And we realize that First Peter says, in First Peter 2.9, that you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You begin to realize that the whole of our job description that we have as Christians are this, that we are to feel and to think and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. That's the point of Haggai. That points us to Jesus. And Haggai points us to Jesus, and Jesus tells us that before the foundations of the world, he chose me and you. That's how much he loved you, because he knew this. Left to our own vices, we would not choose him. Because we know the prophet Jeremiah says this in 17, 9, that your heart and my heart is deceitful above all things. And so you could never actually choose God. Romans 3 says there's no one that, right, that, that is righteous. Isaiah 56 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turns to our own way. But you know what? The shepherd has called us by name. And he's called you to himself. What do you do with that? What do you do? The seemingly insignificant minor prophet, written 520 B.C., says, you know what? I will take you. I will make you. Why? Because I have chosen you when I didn't have to. It's the grace of God. And that is what gives us life. So let's pray and ask God to bless his word.